It's 880 In-Depth, part two this year of our year-ending podcast talking about our top stories of 2019. I'm Tim Scheld with... Peter Haskell. Happy New Year, Peter. Same to you. What what an exhausting and terrific year at the same time, wasn't it? It's one of those things you look back and you say, wow, I cannot believe all the things that happened, all the big stories, all the touching stories, all the memorable stories that we've done. So we did a few last week. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's podcast. This is part two of uh, our discussion with our reporters, asking them about what were uh, the most impactful stories that you covered. Uh, Peter, one of the most interesting stories of the year seemed to come out of absolutely out of nowhere and, and come to a crashing end quite uh, with incredible speed. Uh, friend to the rich and powerful Jeffrey Epstein seemed to escape serious sex assault charges with just a slap on the wrist 10 years ago in Florida until July of this year when he was arrested at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey on federal sex trafficking charges by New York authorities. The case came out of nowhere and snowballed to the point where Epstein was in jail, and you know you know how this story ended. He would be dead six weeks after he was arrested. So we sat down with our Marla Diamond, who covered this story, uh, to talk about the incredible details. This story, with all of its bizarre twists and turns, was just riveting. And uh, it, you just couldn't uh, turn away from it. Here was this eccentric hedge fund entrepreneur with a multi-million dollar mansion in Manhattan. We found out that he had homes in Paris, his own private private island in the Caribbean. He had close ties to former President Clinton and the current President Trump and Prince Andrew. Um, in July, he was charged in a federal indictment with sexually abusing underage girls. And you mentioned Florida, uh, which really didn't make headlines here, but it sure did in South Florida, where he received this sweetheart deal from the feds back in 2007, pleading guilty to two felony prostitution charges in Palm Beach. Epstein was granted work release uh, three months into his 18-month sentence. Uh, And the U.S. attorney at the time was Alexander Acosta. He ended up becoming President Trump's labor secretary And under this cloud, Acosta resigned as labor secretary just a few weeks after the charges came out about Epstein uh, for his role in that uh, very light sentence, an easy prison term for Epstein. It unfolded quite quickly in terms of Epstein being processed in New York. We covered several, I covered several of those court hearings with his lawyer offering to post $600 million bonds so Epstein could live with a a bracelet, a monitoring bracelet in his Upper East Side mansion while he awaited trial. Uh, The judge, uh, Richard Berman, wasn't uh, about to do that uh, because they found this uh, Saudi passport in Epstein's house. It was a very strange circumstance, but uh, they believed that he did have the chance to flee and would have um, if given the chance. So he was ordered back to the Metropolitan Correctional Center, and there begins another chapter in this saga. Uh, He attempted suicide, Epstein did, uh, once, and uh, then he was given a roommate, uh, former Briarcliff Manor cop Nicholas Tartaglione, uh, who was charged with the murders of four people. Um, For unknown reasons, Epstein was taken out of Tartaglione's cell. He was uh, taken off suicide watch, and then he hung himself in his cell. So from indictment to suicide, this whole saga played out uh, in July. 
uh, primarily. And then his suicide left so many unanswered questions that I think the feds are still trying to find answers for now. Even went up to the the investigation immediately, um, got on the radar of the U.S. Attorney General William Barr, who who uh, was furious that uh, mm-hmm. that someone as high profile as Jeffrey Epstein could die uh, or take his own life or you know die uh, in federal custody. And I and to this day, we're still hearing stories. I think uh, was it last week? I heard you report. Uh, that there uh, surfaced uh, some video of, uh, and I still, don't, still we still haven't seen it as far as I know, but video of surveillance video within the prison. Is that true? That is true. And you mentioned the Attorney General William Barr. He said Epstein's suicide was a perfect storm of screw-ups. We learned after the suicide that there was severe understaffing at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, uh, that there were inhumane conditions, and that those two guards that were supposed to be watching Epstein on the night he died falsified records to say they were checking on him. They never did, even though they were 15 feet away from his cell. They were shopping online, according to the uh, indictment. Uh, And then they falsified papers claiming that they had uh, checked on Epstein. So we'll hear more. There will be a trial uh, this year. Trial date has been set for April 20th. Those two guards uh, remain free on bail. And then uh, to just add a little more intrigue to this, the medical examiner ruled the autopsy, ruled during ruled that this was a suicide during the autopsy. But Epstein's lawyers are challenging that conclusion. They opened their own investigation and they hired uh, Michael Bodden to oversee the autopsy. So still so much drama in this very dramatic story. Two other tentacles to follow up with stories that we'll likely cover in the coming year, Marla. And one is uh, the woman that was close to uh, Epstein, who uh, who's many of the victims, um, you know, are hoping gets brought to justice herself. And the U.S. attorney mm-hmm. seems to indicate that, that that investigation is continuing and there may even be cooperation on her part. Right. We haven't heard anything from uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, the uh, British socialite who was a longtime girlfriend of Epstein. Many call her Epstein's madam because she allegedly recruited these young women uh, to give erotic massages and have sex with Epstein's friends and, and uh, they, you know, to uh, his uh, acquaintances. Uh, you were in court with Epstein a couple of times during the the course of this past year, and I uh, I believe you've covered uh, some of the victims outside of court. Um, how did this all play out for them? The victims, you know, I guess you can't summarize because they all have different uh, feelings, but, you know, it seems like there's a bit of an emptiness in a case where the accused uh, takes his own life and uh, can't be brought to justice. Yeah, that is uh, very true. A lot of women came forward, although initially a lot of them were listed as Jane Doe's in court documents. But you have Virginia uh, Virginia Jeffrey and several others who came out with these very sordid details about having sex in uh, in um, Epstein's uh, mansion on his private island and his houses in Palm Beach. And these episodes were allegedly taped. But in the coming year, uh, you can expect. Uh, of course, the uh, 
the guards to go on trial. The guards from the Metropolitan Correctional Center will likely hear a lot more from the victims. And uh, perhaps the federal charges against uh, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, and maybe there are more co-conspirators. I think the feds are looking at that now. You can definitely expect um, some books and a movie or two on the bizarre life of this man who came from nothing, faked his way to the top, and died a sexual predator behind bars. Marla, thank you very much. Happy New Year. Same to you, Tim. You know, Tim, sometimes these big news stories unfold over days and weeks, and sometimes they happen in an instant. That was the case on June 10th. A helicopter crashed on top of a skyscraper. It was a soupy, foggy day. The chopper came down on the AXA Equitable Building in Midtown. Kevin Rincon covered that for us. During a busy time in the city, mid-morning, we get reports of something happening in Midtown, and it's early in the morning. We aren't sure what's going on, and because of the rain and the fog, we can't actually see the building where this happened. We get a report that potentially a small plane crashed into a building in Midtown. Uh, from there, we really have to put boots on the ground and get to the scene to figure out what's going on. And let me just jump in here. Give us a sense of what this, what the sky looked like, what the weather was like. Yeah, I mean, uh, this day in particular, the fog was thick. I recall getting to the scene and you really couldn't see anything beyond maybe the 10th to 20th floor. So uh, as soon as you looked up, it was hard to see anything. And the rain itself was coming down pretty hard and pretty intense that day, which made not just getting to the scene, but made looking up even that more difficult, not just for me or for the other reporters, but for first responders. You know, I think a lot of things that people don't understand is when you go to a breaking news story, it's not like people are handing you information. There's no information. You need to find it out. Describe what that was like on that day. Yeah, in fact, I was covering an event, a separate event at uh, Lower Manhattan, an LGBTQ event with the governor. Uh, they brought the reporters into another room to allow for some off-topic questions. And that's when we all start getting our phones that are buzzing with uh, the, the news that something's going on. At that point, one of the reporters in the room asked the governor if he had heard of anything, and he hadn't. And because of the gravity, I mean, the first thing you start to think of is the worst case scenario when you hear plane crashed into a building in Midtown, New York, in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, they, they actually locked us in that room for a couple of minutes to let the governor leave first, who rushed to the scene. So uh, the governor, even at that point, had no clue what was going on, and he rushed to the scene, too. So not just, you know, reporters, you have state leaders trying to get to the scene to figure out what's going on. Exactly what did happen? Well, that day, uh, a pilot left, Tim McCormack, left from the East 34th Street heliport. He was headed to Linden, New Jersey, and it's not clear if maybe he just got lost with the fog and all of that, but he went the wrong way, went right into Manhattan. Uh, hard to see, again, really hard to see with those conditions at the time, and then slammed into the top of a building in Midtown on 7th Avenue, and that sparked a fire, uh, a small fire albeit, but again, you know, you get all these reports and it sounds bad enough and, and you really need to get all the way up to the top of a skyscraper in Manhattan to figure out what's going on. So that presented its own set of challenges for first responders, too. You've got the first responders, you know, 50 stories up in the air. What was happening on the street? Well, on the street, because, again, information is, is so slow to get out. First responders want to make sure that they're containing the scene. So about, you know, five blocks in the middle of you know, essentially Times Square is cordoned off. 
You have uh, ambulances, uh, police cruisers. You have, you know, FDNY personnel showing up to the scene by the dozens. And, uh, you know, I, I remember looking behind me where I had parked. And by the time I had finished parking my car, just literally ditching it anywhere, those next three blocks behind me had been blocked off. So we got to the scene and about 10 minutes later, I look behind and, and you have three more blocks that are shut down. So it, it was pretty fast for them to try to make sure that the area itself is contained just in case, again, anything else uh, might happen. This is not the first helicopter crash in the city. Over the past dozen years, 17 people have been killed in helicopter crashes. What's happening with that? Are we trying to stop them? And, and what is that effort about? Well, we've seen a legislative effort from a group of New York Dele uh, Congress members uh, who introduced the Improving Helicopter Safety Act. That was done back in October. What they're trying to do is essentially ban non-essential helicopters from flying in urban areas like the city. Uh, we've seen some pushback from, uh, you know, the aviation lobbyists, if you will, as we see pushback with all pieces of legislation that are introduced in D.C. But this wasn't the first big crash. In fact, the year before in 2018, I also covered the East River crash where you had a handful of tourists who died because they couldn't get out of their safety harnesses when it crashed into the East River. That presented a whole nother set of challenges about tourists in open door uh, helicopters in, in that scenario. So we've seen these crashes and these incidents kind of pile up and that's had lawmakers think maybe it is time for change. Sometimes the stories are not things that have happened, but efforts to prevent things from happening, like a school shooting. Mac Rosenberg had a great story about what they did in a North Jersey town to keep their kids safe. Mac, you found a great story this year and I'm going to let you tell us about it. Yeah, Peter. You know, um, the, the story, real quick, the, the stories that interest me the most, the stories that impact the most people. So you have thousands of kids that, that go to school every single day uh, in the tri-state area. And one school district uh, in Harrington Park, New Jersey, decided to start installing bulletproof doors uh, beginning with this school year, the 2019-2020 school year. And they did it with the help of a man from Israel, uh, Omer Barnes, who came to America about 15 years ago, built a family for himself, has kids now who go to school in this district, and he builds doors. He builds, um, you know, high-powered security doors that are meant for safe rooms in government buildings and military buildings that uh, he has seen in Israel. Every building in Israel is required to have a safe room. So he built these bulletproof doors um, and... The superintendent of the Harrington Park School District, uh, Adam Freed, reached out to him uh, and had this proposition uh, of making, trying to make the schools as safe as possible, uh, given uh, the climate that we live in, where you see um, school shootings that are far too common happening. And uh, he, he decided to, to take him up on that offer. Mainly, a, a big reason was because his kids go to school in this district. So it became a, a personal thing for him. I want to ask you more about the doors and the reaction to the doors, but for you, what was it that stood out about this? It's something, you know, when when, when Mr. Barnes told me, uh, you know, about what these doors were designed for. They're not designed to be in schools, and, you know, that kind of stuck out to me because you have a 150-pound door with 
galvanized steel. Sounds like it's hard to open. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's definitely uh, a little bit heavier than your average door. It looks normal, looks like a regular door, uh, but, and, and you know, that that this could be a barrier. This could be a major, major barrier uh, if, God forbid, there was uh, a shooter armed in a school. What did the teachers have to say about this? What what did other folks say? Do people think this is a good idea or is it just a waste of money? Yeah, there was mixed reaction here, Peter, and that's what kind of stuck out to me is you had one teacher who uh, saw the doors in the school. She had told Mr. Barnes that her son texted her upon finding about about these uh, about these doors and said mom I'm glad you're safe and that really that was like a a very simple thing but also really spoke to to what these doors could do and and knowing that they're going to be there now and then another teacher told him is this what what America has come to now that we have to have bulletproof doors in schools and and he said yes but it's going to make them safe so kind of like an attitude of listen these are these are the times, and you know we're going to do whatever we can to to roll with and, and adapt to the times. You know, it's interesting. There are too many school shootings, but if you look at the number of schools, there are, you know, proportionally there aren't that many. And so, if every school put in all these doors, that is a ton of money. Is this is this somebody who's trying to exploit the fears that parents have, or is this? something that is legitimate that maybe we do need i get the feeling that it's it's the latter for a couple of reasons first this guy's kids go to the school i mean you know he he said he sleeps better at night knowing that his kids are in schools with these doors and secondly he told me or he he actually he said that the doors go for around thirty nine hundred dollars a piece however because he's getting so many more schools reaching out to him, he's lowering the price to about 2500 and wants to keep lowering the price. So that gave me the impression this is not about money for him. He does have a business to run, but uh, you know he, he is prepared to, to keep lowering the price to, to keep, make these schools safer. Great story, Mac, on an issue that is really at the forefront of so many parents' minds. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Peter. Well, these have been some heavy stories, but fortunately, we also covered our share of feel-good stories. They don't get much better than the ones Sophia Hall told us about on Long Island. When you listen to the news on a day-to-day basis, it frankly can be depressing sometimes. So many intense stories, so many bad news stories, so much contentiousness going on in the world these days. Sometimes you need a good news story. Sophia, you had a great one this year with a bagel guy. Tell us about it. You know, Peter, I'm thinking back to the story, which I did a few weeks ago, and it still makes me smile. And I remember everybody at the bagel store, outside the bagel store, they were all talking about Vinny Prosha, the manager of this bagel store in Middle Island, here on Long Island and he was working on a Saturday and he gets a phone call and a woman is kind of frantic on the phone saying you happen to have my keys that I leave them on the counter did you happen to have my keys and he says oh yeah they're here I'll save them for you but she had a story she was in Holmesdale Pennsylvania stuck because on that keychain was her key fob for her brand new car and there was no way for her to get back home to Long Island so Vinny, the manager, said, no problem. I'll, I'll put in overnight, and uh, they'll overnight it over there. You'll get them on Sunday, and you can be back home on Monday. But after checking around, there was no overnight service. So amazingly, 
Vinny actually got into his car and decided to drive to Honesdale, Pennsylvania to help this woman out uh, because she said, I have to be back to work on Monday. My kids have to be back to school. I can't wait, you know, until Monday or Tuesday to get this key fob. And it took him a 10-hour round trip, six hours to get to Honesdale, Pennsylvania, another four hours to get back. Uh, She was at a party over there. And uh, I guess everybody was hugging him and, and cheering that he did this. Uh, and Peter, and she was also upset because it was a brand new car. And usually brand new cars, when you don't have that key fob, there's an alert system on there that says, you know, you don't have the key fob or some cars actually let you drive maybe five or 10 miles or half an hour. And then they just shut down. But this brand new car, she managed to go from Middle Island all the way to Homesdale, Pennsylvania without the car stopping. What a great story. This is this is one of those things that restores your faith in humanity. You spoke to Vinny. What possessed him to do this? You know, I asked him more than once that question because it's almost like an unbelievable story. Like, what did you get out of it? Did she have a, a lucky lottery ticket there waiting for you? And he said, absolutely not. He said she sounded so desperate on the phone so upset, and his parents always taught him to do the right thing, even if you don't get anything in return, that he just decided to buy a cup of coffee, the caffeine would keep him awake, he said, and uh, go all the way uh, to Pennsylvania to help her out. Now, I did say, did you know that it was going to take you six hours to get there? He said, absolutely not. In fact, uh, the GPS said uh, two and a half or three hours, and it ended up taking him six hours. But he doesn't uh, regret doing it. And another little added piece of the story here. The, uh, a cop actually pulled him over on the way back to Long Island and uh, apparently was going to give him a ticket until Vinny told him what had just happened, this whole entire story. And the cop was amazed with uh, what Vinny did and let him go without giving him a ticket. It's got to be pretty amazing to be on the receiving end of this. The woman who had the key fob returned, what was her reaction to the fact that, that Vinny would do this? Diana Chong uh, was uh, very happy. In fact, you know, when I was at the bagel store, she came on her lunch break, gave him a hug. She had a smile on her face. She was so thankful. And she says, really, there's nothing I could do, you know, for Vinny. He's a good guy. Thanked him. I believe she also gave him like a a gift card. But she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to help somebody else. I'm going to teach everybody to pay it forward and to do something amazingly good for somebody else. And that's how I'm going to in a, in a way, repay Vinny for what he did by paying it forward to a stranger. Seems like there's a lesson there. Try to do good for others, and then if someone does good for you, you try to repay it, if not to that person, then to somebody, anybody else. Yeah, and, and it's good, and then hopefully that person repays it to someone else, and, and somebody else repays it to somebody else, and it and it kind of just goes on and on and on and on. It doesn't stop, and And, you know, like you said at the beginning there, Peter, we do a lot of very bad news, very awful news, uh, very sad news. But uh, this story, I think it was such a talker without Long Island and and probably throughout the state and maybe even the country who people who heard it just because it is just a happy story. And it's a story where somebody just went out of their way to do good and really got nothing in return.
Great story from Sophia Peter. And you know, we really met some truly special people along the way in 2019 through our Difference Makers series with Sean Adams in his stories from Main Street. He tells them every Monday we meet some incredible people. We asked Sean as we end this year uh, to tell us the ones that stood out to him. Sean, I suspect it's a little like asking a parent who their favorite child is, but anybody stand out to you over the course of 2019? Absolutely, and, and you're right, it is difficult because each individual uh, is special, and every week it really is a pleasure to, to, to introduce these people to the, the listening audience because they're, they're amazing. Uh, the common thread is they are, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. And people should know uh, one little tidbit. Uh, all of this is possible because y- you came up with this idea and you dispatched me uh, and you give me the time to find these stories. So people need to know that, and I, I hope that uh, you get a couple pats on the back for that. <laughs> so let's get right into it. Who's number one? With uh, Number one, I, I want to start uh, with a young man who really just, he, he's got it, he's got it. He just has something special. His name is Brian Yeager from Hastings-on-Hudson. He's a hockey player, and he's a young man with a big heart. His aunt, who was a first-grade teacher in the Edgemont School District, Uh, She died uh, about four years ago from cancer, and it really left a hole in the family, and uh, it was a tough time, and uh, uh, Brian came up with an idea. He wanted to do something to honor her and then also help other people at the same time. So this is a little uh, snippet of of Brian Yeager from a few months back. When my aunt passed away in 2015, it kind of left a big hole in the family, and hockey, as well as her, have been a big part of my life. So what he did, he started a charity. He calls it Stick Up to Cancer. He goes around, he collects uh, used hockey sticks. He distributes them to uh, underserved communities uh, where kids might not have enough money to get gear. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is his parents said, well, if you do that, we'll donate money for every stick and we'll create a fund, the Marla Fund, uh, for his aunt, Marla Payson Wisner. And that that fund, all the money that he's generated now, uh, funds uh, literacy programs in the Edgemont School District. Uh, She was a teacher at Greenville Elementary, and we have an update. Sometimes uh, we don't get to complete the story. The update is this year uh, he was able to raise thousands of dollars, several thousand uh, dollars, uh, and to help uh, the the, the school district. And I do believe that money went uh, toward uh, a library renovation. So uh, really he... Young man with a big heart, and he did a lot of good things. Next up, uh, this is a, a man from Rockland County who uh, he has a spark of something special inside of him, and he believes it was passed on to him from someone uh, else uh, with whom I know you are quite familiar on a personal level. Uh, so this man, he, he was a high school teacher in Rockland County, Billy Keenan. Billy uh, was, uh, he was an Army veteran. He was a paratrooper, big in the Irish community. He was a musician, uh, would perform quite a bit, uh, high school teacher in the North Rockland School District. About five years ago, he was paralyzed from the neck down in a surfing accident. And uh, he, at the time in the hospital, he, he's quite honest, he was praying for death. Until he received a phone call. He received a phone call from uh, NYPD detective Stephen McDonald. Uh, who himself was paralyzed from the neck down, uh, shot in Central Park in 1986. And Stephen's journey took him 
from that horrible moment in Central Park uh, to a lifelong crusade to spread a message of love, peace, compassion, and forgiveness. And so this phone call from Stephen McDonald completely transformed Billy Keenan, uh, and this is what he has to say about that phone call. And Stephen said to me, Billy, there's a reason why you're alive. Your work is not done. God has a very special plan for you. And he took those words to heart, and uh, he uh, got himself back to the point where, one, he weaned himself off of the ventilator. He was a he's able to breathe on his own. He's still paralyzed in the wheelchair. He was determined to get back to teaching, and he did for a few years. He was able to teach again in, in the North Rockland uh, district. Uh, he, it was uh, too much of a demand on his body, so he had to retire. Uh, but he spends his time now uh, speaking to school children, sports teams, uh, anyone who wants to hear his message. And his message uh, continues that work of Stephen McDonald. And he speaks about overcoming adversity. It's, he's a powerful individual, uh, and he really, you can hear that, uh, that calm in his voice it truly echoes uh, the same um type of um spiritual um ease that Stephen McDonald had and uh, this man Billy Keenan now has devoted his life to helping other people in the way in which he can and uh, he believes that he's now carrying on uh to some degree the work of Stephen McDonald who died uh, just about 3 years ago now next up this is a story that uh, generated a lot of interest. Uh, it's it, it's it's really powerful. It has to do with the FDNY, and everybody knows uh, the horrible suffering that the FDNY has had to endure since September 11th. Uh, the uh, the firefighters who died on that day, and the firefighters who have died since, uh, because of World Trade Center related cancer. This is somewhat different, though. Uh, there's something developing. Uh, it's not just isolated to New York. It's happening to firefighters uh, everywhere. Um, so it's not related to it's an illness, not related to the World Trade Center, but to the job itself. Occupational cancers uh, they're on the rise among firefighters. Within the FDNY, there's a deputy chief. Uh, his name is Frank Lieb, and uh, unofficially within the department, he is known as the cancer guy. And he sort of he's made it his own personal mission to learn as much as he can about why this is occurring and how they can better protect uh, the members of the fire department. Uh, so it, some of it comes back to education, and uh, and he there, there's a term that within the fire department is quite common, but uh, he talks about it here. It's uh, the salty firefighter. Salty firefighter. I mean, you look at old photos, and it's the uh, it's the grizzly old firefighter. He's uh, he's dirty. He just came out of battle from a, from a big fire, and um, you know, so a younger firefighter doesn't know any better. Looks up to that firefighter. You know, they see that's that badge of honor. He's he's salty. He's so the salty firefighter is no more. That uh, image, uh, they're trying to banish that image uh, and get firefighters to realize that uh, they need to protect themselves. They need to be clean. They say uh, clean is the new salty. That's the, the motto. And what they mean is this. What we know about fires is, you know, 100 years ago a house was built mainly from timber and it would burn and, you know, smoke is never a good thing, but... It wasn't like smoke today. All of the synthetic materials in, in buildings today 
What we know is fires today, they burn faster, they burn hotter, and uh, the smoke is far more toxic. So the firefighters today are exposed to uh, carcinogens uh, that you know, really were not a concern uh, you know, decades ago. And so you have young firefighters uh, developing these occupational cancers, and so they're working on different ways to protect firefighters. Uh, they're trying to uh, get them in the mindset of, of being clean. If you're at a fire, your gear's dirty, you swap it out, you get it cleaned, you never take your dirty gear home because now you're exposing your family to uh, those carcinogens as well. So this is important work. It's developing. This is a relatively new phenomenon over the past several years. And uh, Deputy Chief uh, Lieb is uh, really uh, at the forefront within the FDNY. And that, that Sean, I, I mentioned to you that that was a story, uh, one of the stories that you told during the course of the year that was one of the most popular ones. Uh, was shared among the FDNY community, and, and we're proud of that uh, story that you told. So good for you. And uh, this sort of segues to uh, the, the next important person. Uh, this is related to the World Trade Center and uh, the uh, epidemic of illness that is now, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, an epidemic of illness that is now uh, reaching a new level. Uh, I like to call it a second wave uh, because it is. Uh, we all know that, uh, that the, the collapse of the Twin Towers released a tsunami of horrible, horrible toxic compounds. Uh, the smoke uh, was uh, terribly dangerous, uh, the dust. And because of that, uh, we've known for years now, uh, it started with first responders becoming sick, uh, NYPD detective Zadroga, um, you know, his death really woke everybody up to potentially what could happen and it is now coming to fruition uh, you know thousands of people are getting sick from the toxic uh, dust uh, from the World Trade Center and 18 years later this is happening we know because some of these toxic components uh, there's a latency period uh, they embed themselves in human tissue they sit there and uh, years and years later uh, cancer develops or other illnesses, uh, respiratory illnesses, digestive illnesses. So the work of the World Trade Center Health Program is uh, incredibly important, and uh, they're getting busier and busier all the time, unfortunately. Uh, responders are checked out at Mount Sinai, and the head of the World Trade Center Health Program at Mount Sinai is a, a devoted uh, health care provider, Dr. Michael Crane, and this man, every ounce of his being is devoted to caring for people who are, are becoming sick. Uh, and uh, we can tell you that there are 70, roughly 76,000 first responders being checked out uh, under his care. He estimates uh, 90,000 should be in the program. Uh, and uh, we spoke with him, and he was quite honest about uh, you know what potentially could be going on here. I have this terrible, terrible thought every once in a while that there's a group of people who I don't know who are out there and who've been exposed who are then going to come down with some type of rare tumor, uh, things that are even on the, not even on the lists we have. Um, and they're going to go to doctors who are going to try and help them, um, who are not going to make the connection between here and world trade, um, and they're not going to get the right care. And that makes me crazy. So you can hear the passion in his voice. Uh, this is his calling, and every I can uh, I can say this personally because I'm in the program, and I I have been to Mount Sinai. 
the people there are so devoted to what they're doing. Uh, they are uh, wonderful. They're patient with you. They're compassionate. Uh, they are devoted to uh, to caring for people who are now getting sick. And uh, they estimate uh, 400,000 people who uh, lived or worked below Canal Street uh, were exposed to these uh, carcinogens and should be monitored. So it's not just responders, uh, survivors, people who lived and worked in lower Manhattan. They're entitled to be in the program. They're entitled to free medical screening annually, and if they uh, do become ill, the program is there to take care of them. Uh, the uh, so uh, this is uh, something that's going to be with us, unfortunately, for a long time, but the people who are in charge of uh, de delivering the care, uh, they are incredible, and uh, uh, Dr. Michael Crane, uh, he's leading the charge there at Mount Sinai. An incredibly important story, Sean. Thank you for telling telling that one. We'll end our discussion with a single guy who exhibits his own devotion, but his devotion is to a childhood friend. Is that is that right? This is, uh, you know, this is something that you brought to my attention, and I didn't even have to get through the entire email to say, yes, this is a wonderfully heartwarming story, and it's inspirational, and we can all learn from this gentleman. 97-year-old Gabe Vitalone. Gabe Vitalone, uh, Army veteran, World War II, uh, grew up in Yonkers. You know, he'll, he'll tell you, you know, a child of the Depression, they had nothing, but boy, uh, there wasn't uh, anything he was lacking. He just, he, he says he's had it all. And um, just he's really led a charmed life. Uh, he's uh, his wife. Uh, he and his wife they've been married uh, for I think over sixty years now. <laughs> They're great together. Uh, he's a retired uh, college educator, uh, sports coach. Uh, he was at uh, William Patterson for a long, long time. And he'll tell you, you know, he he's, he's lived it all. There's something left that he wants to do, and he's making a pitch to do it. And I, I think. Uh, fingers crossed it's going to happen. Um, so going back to uh, his childhood in Yonkers, Gabe Vitalone had a friend, his friend Joe Romano, and they were thick as thieves, these guys. They just did everything together. One of the things they did, one of their passions, they shared a love for the New York Yankees. And so they were lucky enough to see the New York Yankees play in the World Series. I, I hope I get all the years right here. 1936, 1937, 38, 39, 41, 42, and then by that point, uh, Joe, uh, he was a Marine, he was shipped out to the Pacific, he didn't get to see 43, Gabe uh, was uh, in the Army, he showed up to that World Series to get a ticket, he was in uniform, he was told, you're in uniform, you go to the front of the line, he got the first ticket for that World Series game, he still has the stub. Uh, sadly, uh, Joe Romano was, uh, he was killed in action on Saipan. And so Gabe Vitalone has carried that in his heart for all these years. Never forgot his friend. And he wants to do something extraordinary uh, to honor him. He wants to combine a couple of different elements here. His patriotism, his, his love of the Yankees, his love for his friend, and all other veterans. Uh, he wants to sing the national anthem before a a game at Yankee Stadium and he's been practicing and he's a humble guy he's just 
He's just salt of the earth. He's been working on this. His heart is, is just set upon it. And this is the reason why he wants to do it. I remember Joe, but I also have met fellows in the service who I know who are completely forgotten. They're not remembered. And so maybe uh, a little bit of this would rub off so that when we're doing this for Joe, we're doing it for all servicemen and all baseball fans and you know, just they're doing it for everybody. So Tom Brokaw refers to these uh, these gentlemen as the greatest generation, and, and we hear that term often, and I don't think anybody can make an argument why that isn't true. And what you hear there, you you hear that this... This man, 97-year-old Gabe Vitalone, he truly is the epitome of that greatest generation. Uh, he's doing this from the heart. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it to say thank you. You're not forgotten. You'll always be remembered. And uh, I hope we can be there the, when he gets to sing at Yankee Stadium. Sean, Happy New Year to you and your family, and I uh, can't wait to see what 2020 brings for us in terms of blessings and good things. Well, there are a lot of good people out there, and we're going to find them, and I already have a couple of good ones lined up, so stay tuned in 2020. It's good, Peter, to wrap this discussion up with a conversation about folks that actually prove to us that the world is filled with really good people. You look at impeachment, you look at criminal investigations, you look at crime, fires, disasters. The people are out there. Sean told the story. Sophia, Max... A lot of the 9-11 PCF people who went out of their way for the good of others. That's what makes this community, our community, special. Great people to remember, Peter. Thank you. What will 2020 hold? Can't wait. Subscribe to 880 In-Depth, and we promise you won't miss a thing this year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bill, want to say Happy New Year? No. Come on. (laughs) Say it. I'm the the behind-the-scenes guy. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.